Okay, is that, is that coming through the system? Okay, good. So um, I have the habit of, of taking things out of the newspapers and articles and teachings that I've heard and I, I just have a huge file of things and uh, I'm gonna offer a bunch of them to you tonight. <laughs> and if you can find you know, a common thread, that's good. And if not, <laughs> some of these uh, are pieces that were written for a magazine, a Buddhist uh, journal. <clears throat> Recently, I heard someone on the radio explaining the new crime of identity theft. And I immediately thought, yes. <laughs> Rob me, please. Take my identity and leave the cash. I can regard my entire Buddhist path as a matter of shifting identities. And it all started with me trying to run away from myself. The sentimental histrionic drama of me-ness. The Buddha says that the false conceit of I or self is the bane of our existence. And I was indeed relieved when I began to see through the various membranes of personal identity. But what really surprised and delighted me is what I saw on the other side. It turns out I am not who I thought I was. I'm much, much more than that. For the most part, we each live in our own story and it's pretty much the only one we tell. And that's too bad because while each of us is lost in our private drama, we don't notice that we are taking part in grand epics and heroic noble projects. For instance, even while reading email or shopping for socks, we continue to operate as breathing cells in the great body of life on earth, part of a fascinating multi-billion year experiment in biology and consciousness. Of course, in your own story, you're always the star, but in the big story of life on earth, you're just a bit player, just a walk-on part. But that's the point. You can disappear into this grand perspective like walking into a Chinese landscape painting and getting swallowed up by the deep gorges of bamboo forest and eternal sky. You can move out of the personal into increasingly large circles of inclusion and identity until finally you can point in any direction and say, along with the great Hindu mystics, Tatvam Asi, I am that. When I see myself in an epic story such as evolution, I find relief from my personal drama. The Buddha explained the effect to his son Rahula, noting that if you take a teaspoon of salt and place it in a glass of water, it will make the water taste salty. But if you put the same teaspoon of water of, of salt in the Ganges River, it won't affect the water's taste. I guess that's the end of that. <laughs> When I see myself in an epic story such as evolution, I find relief from my personal drama. Likewise, your personal drama can be dissolved in the seven seas of life and the great ocean of space-time. 
The path of meditation reminds us that we are alive primarily by leading us from our heads into our bodies. We come down from the story of our life to the fact of our life. My teacher told me to sweep my body with awareness and slowly but surely I became familiar with my nose and my toes and what poet Mary Oliver calls the world of lime and appetite, the oceanic fluids. This bag of bones and seawater came alive and started to take over from my ego as the foundation of my identity. You might say I was born again as an animal. I had joined a grand and venerable sangha. To witness myself in the story of evolution, I feel a surge of compassion for the struggles of all life. Let's face it, the basic rules on this planet are hard. But the phrase, may all beings be happy, has a deeper ring to it when I regard myself as in the same world as those who dress in feathers and fur and scales, leaves and bark. Now when I sit in meditation, I can feel my aliveness, my mammalian condition, my species self. I also sense my practice as part of a group effort by human beings to awaken to a new kind of freedom and sanity. Meditation has been called an evolutionary sport. In the light of that big perspective, I thank you for being on my side, part of this exciting project, helping us all to realize our precious collective human potential. Please identify yourself. You know, I think you know, ever since uh, we humans grew these big brains, we've been asking big questions about who we are and why we're here and what's this universe all about. And, and uh, for a long time, we thought it was all about us. But more and more as we are discovering the size of the universe and the, the weirdness of uh, subatomic phenomena, and the strange behavior of gravity and time, it's starting to look like uh, we're just, you know, given a pass for a few days to look around. And, but, but this is not made for us. I think what's really interesting is that uh, the story of evolution really supports the Buddha's teaching in that the Buddha was constantly saying, this body's not mine or anyone else's. It has arisen due to causes and conditions that he didn't own this physical uh, being. That it grew and that it grew out of uh, the lives of many, all the life that came before us. Inside your skull right now is a fully functioning reptilian brain and a fully functioning mammalian brain and the new human brain or neocortex. And there's growing uh, evidence that we use our new human brain mostly to make excuses for the behavior generated by the other two brains. That we're not rational animals so much as we are rationalizing animals. But if we uh, see ourselves in the story of evolution, 
We're forgiven for all of our mistakes. There were millions of generations of dinosaurs, millions of generations of mammals before humans came along. We've had maybe 30, 40,000 generations of modern hum humans. We're a baby species. Humans should not be tried as adults, you know? It's, we <laughs>
microscopic beings is that they reproduce by just dividing. They don't have to take each other out to dinner first or anything like that. It's just, they just say, you know, have a nice life, have a nice life. And they get twice, uh, two times the chances to be happy. But uh, we are a new type of animal. Some of you I know are in denial. You know, I I don't mean to offend you if uh, you're offended by being thought of as an animal. But we are a new type of animal. Our ancestors came down from the trees just about uh, a few million years ago and started living on the on the land. Among them was uh, an ape woman that the scientists have named Lucy, the mother of us all. So you can assume that the father of us all was Ricky. <laughs> It's not commonly known. (laughs) Anyway, uh, Lucy started hanging out more on the land and uh, became what what was known as Homo habilis, or the uh, handyman. And eventually turned into Homo erectus, a man who stands upright. And that was a very big and important step in our evolution, standing upright, because it left our arms and hands free. Arms are free to carry stuff around and hands were free to fix things. And uh, so that was, uh, and also, uh, it helped us to, travel away from our homeland. You know, uh, you carry stuff in your, in your hands and your arms. We started wandering out of Africa. Nobody knows exactly why we, we left. But it might have been to look for Chinese food. Our brains had grown. If, it, if our brains had grown a little bigger, we might have figured out how to send, send out for Chinese food. But then we started spreading around the, the planet. At some point, our brains outgrew our heads. We had to get a whole new skull to hold the uh, bigger brain. And about 40,000 years ago, the Cro-Magnon people appear. And they started making masks and jewelry. And uh, I think, nobody's substantiated this, but uh, I think that the Cro-Magnon people were the first to display a sense of humor. No, I'm, that's wrong. <laughs> As if I actually, you know, I'm reading things. You should remember this for the test. Uh, Cro-Magnon people appeared about 40,000 years ago. And uh, 
they, they, they were first to display a sense of humor, that, which they got by watching Neanderthals work with tools. <laughs> anyway, 10,000 years ago, <laughs> the problem is that they're laughing at me, not with me. So 10,000 years ago, our really great aunt grandparents appeared, invented ag agriculture, began to uh, construct cities. The last 10,000 years have been a real revolution in the life of this planet. In uh, just not a long time, in geological time or biological time, we've figured out how to see to the edge of the universe We've seen deep inside of matter. In just the last 200 years, we've nearly doubled, doubled the average lifespan. Just a few generations ago, most of our ancestors were peasants. So it's a whole new world out there. And with that as a perspective, we, you might say we're, doing not, we're not doing a bad job of being, of being humans. Still working with brains of hunter-gatherers. Inside each of your cell is a strand of DNA containing the equivalent of thousands of volumes of information. The entire history of life is stitched inside of us. Consider, the human brain processes 11 million bits of information a second, and you hardly have to lift a finger. We're kind of walking, talking wonders. And considering the complexity and creativity of humans, it's hard not to believe that there's something else going on here, something very special. E.O. Wilson, I think I may have told you this afternoon, E.O. Wilson said, you know, imagining if uh, uh, evolution got started now, uh, the chances of it evolving into a human being are uh, so remote. It's like a hurricane blowing through a junkyard and creating a 747. It, it, you know, anyway, whenever I get really discouraged, uh, I try to remember it's taken the universe 13.7 billion years to make me. That's cause for some respect. Okay, moving right along. <laughs> I think it's helpful in the practice of self-liberation self to know what science is discovering about our brain and cognition. And uh, I was researching for a book I was writing, uh, Buddha's Nature and 
discovered that the latest scientific knowledge is radical and supports the Buddhist vision. In meditation, we look at mind with mindfulness. Scientists look at, at our brains with MRIs, CAT scans and PET scans and squids, superconductive quantum interference devices, and they are as shocked as scientists can get. First of all, they find that most of our mental processes take place beneath conscious awareness on what neuroscientist Daniel Dennett calls the subpersonal level. In other words, you are not involved in the process that produces most of your interpretation of the world and even your decisions, your behavior. You and your so-called consciousness come in late in the game. So who ends up making the decisions in your life? What is at least becoming clear is that you are not necessary. In fact, you can't be found. A Time Magazine cover story called In Search of the Mind, this article concluded, quote, Despite our every instinct to the contrary, consciousness is not some entity inside the brain that corresponds to self, some kernel of awareness that runs the show. After more than a century of looking for it, brain researchers have concluded that such a self simply does not exist. Why wasn't there a national panic of some kind? <laughs> such a self simply does not exist. It turns out the brain is a self-organizing system that doesn't need you. Neuroscientist Daniel Dennett you enter the brain through the eye, march up the optic nerve, round and round the cortex, looking behind every neuron, and then before you know it, you emerge into daylight on the spike of a motor nerve impulse, scratching your head and wondering where the self is. Scientists don't know what consciousness is or where it is. The mystics bow down to it. It's mind with a capital M, mind without contents, pure awareness. Buddhists sometimes call it the original mind or the true nature of mind. Tibetan Buddhists seem to de deify this original mind, give it wondrous names such as the unborn, the predicateless primordial essence, the weaver of the web of appearances, and the outbreather and inbreather of infinite universes throughout the endless duration of time. I I tell no lies, that w that's the name given to consciousness. The weaver of the web of appearances, the outbreather and inbreather of infinite universes through the endless duration of time. Woo. But we all have it, this pure knowing mind. You can see it in meditation, right? You can start to look between thoughts and see the mind events happening and See the pure awareness that knows of everything that comes before it. And it kind of lights up the world. And uh, we can learn to access it more and more. We can learn how to intervene in, to some degree and override the old habits of mind. Ajahn Chah. When we examine all that we call mind, we see only a conglomeration of mental elements, not a self. Feeling, memory, perception are all shifting through the mind like leaves in the wind.
we can discover this through meditation. One profound shift uh, over the years of meditation for me has been my relationship with my thinking mind. We're still friends, uh, and we live together, but we're no longer so codependent. I started my Dharma practice when I saw that my mind had a thinking problem. Had to have some thoughts as soon as I got up and kept thinking in the afternoon. Had to have a thought before going to sleep. Before meditation, I was completely identified with my thoughts. I really thought that they were self-generated and uh, all true. Our, our culture is kind of fixated on, think, on thinking. It's what we get graded on in school. It's, uh, big, it lives up here, the, the culture. It's ironic, I spent the first half of my life learning how to think, and I'm learning, uh, I'm taking the second half to learn how to ignore my thinking. <laughs> this is not to say that thoughts are bad. You give up thinking at your own risk. We simply want to expose the mind to itself. And once we become familiar with its processes, we no longer take thinking so seriously or personally and thoughts no longer have the same power over us. As a species, we've grown to believe our thinking makes us superior to the rest of creation. Charlie Darwin, from his secret notebooks, why is thought, which is a secretion of the brain, deemed to be so much more wonderful than, say, gravity, which is a property of matter? It's only our arrogance, our admiration of ourselves. And Stephen Jay Gould says, an octopus doesn't go around being proud of its eight arms. I'll move right along here see what else comes up. This is all in the service of bringing you big perspectives and uh, relieving your suffering. Remember that. <laughs> the story of evolution is our collective autobiography. Each of us starts life as a single cell, the shape of an egg. Once the human egg is fertilized, the DNA code guides it through the history of life on Earth. The single cell grows into a multi-celled sphere, into a tubular worm-like body. The human embryo then grows rudimentary fins, gills, webbed fingers and toes, features of reptiles and amphibians, as we cycle through the DNA of ancient ancestors. Even after we start to grow arms and legs, we resemble the embryos of pigs and rabbits. It happens in the warm sea of the womb and at birth, we repeat the exodus from the ocean and land in the world. The Buddha told us to ask this construction, self, what is its source, its cause, its origin? 
Evolution provides us with a most potent story of dependent co-arising in multiple causes and conditions that lead to us here at this moment. And here is Charlie himself, Mr. Darwin. There is a simple grandeur in this view of life with its powers of growth, assimilation, and reproduction being originally breathed into matter under one or a few forms. And while this, our planet has gone circling on, this, by the way, is the final paragraph of uh, Origin of Species. And while this, our planet has gone circling on according to fixed laws, and land and water in a cycle of changes have gone on replacing each other, from so simple an origin through the process of gradual selection of infinitesimal changes, endless forms, most beautiful and wonderful, have been evolved. From so simple an origin through the process of gradual selection of infinitesimal changes, endless forms, most beautiful and wonderful, have been evolved. That's us. Oh, yes. After hearing of Darwin's theory of evolution, the wife of the Bishop of Worcester is said to have exclaimed, Descended from the apes? My dear, let us hope that it is not true, but if it is, let us pray that it will not become generally known. <laughs> well, as you might know or might have thought of, uh, today is a crisis, uh, climate crisis day, and there are young people all over the world demonstrating for attention to this this difficult uh, condition that we've we've got ourselves into, and uh, so we'll send them a, a hit of uh, courage and love and appreciation. They're young. Okay. My uh, idea, which is, is that we read the endangered species list aloud in churches and schools and publicly so that people know what's going on. Anyway, moving on. My favorite poet is uh, a haiku poet named Kobayashi Isa. He's very well loved in Japan and uh, he writes his poems to other species of life, about other species of life sometimes, but often to other species of life. And uh, he's just a unique, unique writer. I'll give you a few of his, his gems. If times were good, I'd ask one more of you to join me. Flies. on his 50th birthday. From now on, 
It's all clear profit. Every sky. A huge frog and I staring at each other. Neither of us moves. Climb Mount Fuji, snail. But slowly, slowly. <laughs> Simply trust. Do not the petals flutter down just like that? Don't kill the fly. Look, it's begging you, wringing its hands and feet. Even for the emperor, the nightingale sings the same song. Even among the insects, some can sing, some can't. <laughs> Where there are humans, you'll find flies and Buddhas. One human being, one fly in a large room. I'm going out, flies, so relax, make love. <laughs> Mosquito at my ear, does it think I'm deaf? <laughs> out from the darkness, back into the darkness, the affairs of the cat. I have two favorites. In these latter-day degenerate times, cherry blossoms everywhere. This world of ours, walking on the roof of hell, gazing at flowers. It's a beauty, huh? Oh, owl, make some other face. It's spring. I wrote a, a haiku poem, if you'd like to hear it. The haiku poets, counting on all their fingers, not enough syllab. <laughs> okay, it's, it's a couple things I want to share with you for sure. So just... We won't be too much longer. Um, all parts of the earth are built over, trampled, full of commerce. Farms and fields drive back the forests. Even rocks are cultivated. Swamps are drained. And today's towns outnumber yesterday's houses. Everywhere on earth are residences, peoples, governments, and human growth now so clogs the world that it can barely support us. And as our needs increase, we struggle with each other for them, and nature fails us. That was written by the historian Teruli in 150 AD. Okay, here's, a, here's a, another one for a few of us who are of a certain age. 
In the morning after taking a cold shower, what a mistake, I look at the mirror. <laughs> There's this funny guy, gray hair, white beard, wrinkled skin. What a pity, poor old man, he's not me, absolutely not. <laughs> Land and life, fishing in the ocean, sleeping in the desert with stars, building a shelter in the mountains, singing with coyotes, fighting against nuclear war. I'll never be tired of life. Now I'm 17 years old, a very charming young man. I sit down quietly in lotus position, meditating. Suddenly a voice comes to me. To stay young, to save the world, break the mirror. Well, uh, unless there's thunderous applause, I will draw, draw this to a close. <laughs> I was fishing for that, you know. I don't think we have uh, Q&A questions. In that. Uh, there's, no, there's nothing to question me about <laughs> Dhamma is the fourth foundation of mindfulness Dhamma yeah Dhamma Vipassana yeah it's sort of the the workings the laws of of yeah 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 Yeah. Yeah, it's a foreign language. <laughs> okay, there's another. Due to the popular demand, I will do one more. Oh, this is nice. I like this. If an alien were to hover a few hundred yards above the planet, it could be forgiven for thinking that cars were the dominant life form, and that human beings were a kind of ambulatory fuel cell in, <laughs> I, injected when the car wished to move off and ejected when they were spent. <laughs> Okay, within a circle of one meter, you sing, pray, and sit. Within a shelter 10 meters large, you sleep well. Rain sounds a lullaby. Within a field 100 meters large, you raise rice and goats. Within a valley 1,000 meters large, you gather firewood, water, and wild vegetables. Within a forest 10 kilometers large, you play with raccoons, hawks, bears, poison snakes, butterflies. Within a circle 10,000 kilometers large, you go to see the southern coral reef in the summer or in winter, drifting ices in the Arctic Sea. 
within a circle 10,000 kilometers large, walking somewhere on the earth, within a circle one million kilometers large, swimming in the sea of shooting stars, the moon in the east, the sun in the west, within a circle 10 billion kilometers large, you pop out of the solar system mandala. Within a circle 10,000 light years large, you see the galaxy full blooming in spring. Within a circle 1 billion light years large, Andromeda is melting away into cherry blossoms. Now, within a circle 10 billion light years large, all thoughts of time and space are burnt away. And there again, you sit, pray, and sing. You sit, pray, and sing. So let's sit for a minute. One more haiku from Kobayashi Isa. All night long, the frogs talk about sex. Thank you for listening. Keep laughing. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.